did not always have an interest in medicine. I was going to be a professional baseball player. As early as I can remember, that was the job I wanted, and that was the only job that I wanted. What I learned about podiatry was exactly what I was looking for. So the CEO really encouraged me to, to start my own practice, and I was terrified to do that. That was not something I'd ever planned on doing. This is The Practice Prescription. I'm Jake McClure. Today, your host is Priyank Sharma. On today's show, we have Dr. Matthew Newhouse. Dr. Newhouse is a podiatrist based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Sharma talks with Dr. Newhouse about structure, workflow, consistency, and the operational side of clinical practice, which has allowed him to expand his initial practice to eight different locations across the greater Nashville area. Can you tell us about your practice right now? How many providers do you have and what types of diseases? Sure. Yeah, I'm a podiatrist, so we treat uh, foot and ankle pathology, whether it be ingrown toenails or heel pain or ankle fractures or reconstructive flat foot surgery, any, anything in, in between. We have seven offices. We have seven uh, doctors that are in our practice, and we've grown steadily over the last four or five years. Do you have any mid-level providers, or is it just no. the seven doctors? No. Taking it back to the beginning, when did you know that you wanted to be a podiatrist, and when did you kind of set yourself on that path? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. People frequently do ask me that. I did not always have an interest in medicine. I was uh, going to be a professional baseball player from the mm. time I was just as early as I can remember. That was the job I wanted, and that was the only job that I wanted. So I had a, a good friend through middle school and high school, and he was huge into medicine. He was sure he was going to be a doctor. So he had a police scanner, and we would mess around at his house and listen to his police scanner, and part of our our relationship or friendship was chasing ambulances and going to different accident scenes. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and we'd ride our bike down to the university when the helicopter was coming in and watch them take people out of the helicopter for traumas and kind of peek in the ER and rode our bikes all over Madison, chasing police cars and ambulances and fire trucks. I think that, looking back on it, I think that had an impact on me when I got to college and decided I, baseball wasn't going to be the route for me. I actually had to decide, what am I going to do with my life? Um, I took a pre-med class. Uh, it was an early morning, a 6 a.m. class. They had different specialists come in. Uh, it was a once-a-week uh, type of class. Mm -hmm. And these specialists would show slides, and they'd talk about what they did and try to inform the students on what healthcare was really all about and what they really did. Um, and that was very influential. And part of that class, we had to observe and be in the clinics with uh, the different specialists. So I've, I've always liked children and thought, hey, maybe I want to be a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And it took about two days uh, in the uh, pediatric practice to realize, hey, I don't want to do this. And these people have talked me out of it. Mm -hmm. And really, it was the spouses that talked me out of it. As I talked to their wives, I'd say, yeah, he's a great doctor. He loves kids, but he's never home for his own children. He's on call all the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, the financial issues related to that. And I realized that that was the case with a lot of different specialties that I, you know, I picked out to, to follow these people around them. Mm -hmm. And I became very discouraged uh, very quickly because I realized, you know, I want to have a life outside of my career, whatever that career is. And I really like the idea of, of helping people and serving people and having a skill that was very specialized. And I think that appealed to me. So then I, I kind of switched gears and looked into dentistry. And I became a pre-dental student, took mm -hmm. all the teeth carving classes and really spent a couple of years focused on that. And then again, I had the opportunity to spend some time with different specialists and dentists. And 
realized very quickly that that was not gonna not gonna work for me. Um, mm-hmm. I liked their hours, their the fact they didn't have the insurance problems. They seemed much happier than most physicians were as far as the quality of life goes. But uh, it just wasn't it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. So I was about ready to give up on healthcare and say, "Hey, I got to find something else to do." This is my third year of of college. I'm saying I don't know what I'm going to do. About to pick up the baseball bat again? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> And at that point, I was married, and we had just had our first child, and we were expecting a second child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt the pressure to, to decide on what I was going to do mm-hmm. you know, as far as a career goes. And my dad said, hey, I have a friend from college who was a podiatrist. You should check him out. I had no idea what a podiatrist was, um, but I got the phone book out, good old days, back with the yellow pages, and found some guy and called him up, and he was nice enough to let me go hang out in his office. And the very first patient that I saw, I'll never forget because it was this patient with a big growth on the top of their foot that was all mm-hmm. infected and he'd numbed it up and he squeezed it. It was like a volcano of pus oh. coming out. And the next thing I remember was I was on the floor with my back against the wall with some nurse waving her hand in front of my face because I'd passed out. She yeah. helped me into a chair and gave me some water and, and uh, I went back for more and you know I really liked everything that they did. What I learned about podiatry was exactly what I was looking for. They do a lot in the office, very procedural based. Um, the guy was doing a lot of surgery, seeing stuff from the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet he was home at five or six o'clock at night. There really aren't a lot of emergencies per se where he has to go in after hours. Um, he was very happy with his career, very happy with his life outside of and his professional life, mm-hmm. and uh, as was his wife and his family. And, and that was really the fit for me, I think, is, is kind of what sold me. Is it was very balanced, a very balanced life. And yet so. still procedural, because I think a lot of the fields that are procedural tend not to be super balanced, it seems Correct. like. Exactly right. And, in the, you know, for a lot of the listeners who may not know, what what's that training like? Because from my understanding, it's also not crazy intense like some of the surgical pure surgery feel well, so, to so speak. that's that was that's a good question and I had no idea what the training involved to become a podiatrist because you're not an MD you're a DPM a doctor of podiatric medicine mm-hmm. and the, the biggest issue that I faced and continue to face is a misunderstanding on what my training really is so we go to four years of school I went to school at the California College of Podiatric Medicine our first two years are didactic uh, at that point, um, it was what all my other friends who were going the allopathic route were learning. I, was, mm-hmm. I did my anatomy and physiology and biochem and histology and pathology. And, and we did all the basic sciences um, uh, those first two years. Our third year, we started to get into the clinical aspects of everything. Mm-hmm. We did not do rotations in OB or psych, mm-hmm. but we did surgery rotations. We did general medicine. We did ER. We you know, we did all the stuff that very similar that anybody else was doing. In fact, um, the year after uh, my first year, there was a, a DO school that started up in California, mm-hmm. and they used our professors. They went to school with the students that were a year behind me. They took the same classes. Um, they used our professors to teach them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was exactly the same education that anybody else was getting. We had professors that came down from University of San Francisco, from mm-hmm. uh, UCSF. Um, and I think most people don't understand that that's what we do. Mm-hmm. It's four years of school. My fourth year, I actually spent in San Antonio, Texas at the University 
of Texas Health Science Center there. We were up at 4.30 in the morning mm-hmm. doing rounds at the hospital, rounding with residents from every other service at the hospital, mm-hmm. um, integrated with them. Uh, and then it was you know, lectures and speakers and grand rounds and everything else. And I'd get home at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. It was mm-hmm. a very intense year mm-hmm. um, that, that really helped kind of put everything together for me. And then as far as residency, I had my residency at the University of Louisville mm-hmm. uh, in Kentucky. And I spent nine months on the orthopedic trauma service as one of the residents with, you know, mm-hmm. on call in the middle of the night and, you know, doing everything that an orthopedic resident would do. And they, you know, we were very integrated into the program there. I did my vascular surgery. I did my general surgery. We did ER. We did family practice. We did infectious disease. We did pathology. Uh, we did uh, podiatry surgery. We did podiatry office stuff. Mm-hmm. It was very geared towards what what I'd be doing in the real world. And that was one of the things that I really liked about podiatry is it would, uh, you know what you're going to do when you get done with the training, when you go to school. Yeah. That was one of the things that scared me about going the MDDO route was uh, I might end up being a family practice doctor, pediatrician. That was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But if mm-hmm. my grades weren't good enough or, you know, I didn't interview well or what have you, then perhaps I'd be getting stuck in a specialty that I didn't want for the rest of my life. I was just curious like, how many years that training was after your fourth year, which kind of sounds almost like a surgery intern year. In yeah, it kind of was. was. Yeah. Then how many years did you have after that? So it's three years. Okay. So. But very streamlined, focused on what you'd be doing. For the most part. Out. I mean, I did, I did, like I said, I did ER, I did plastic surgery, I did mm. anesthesia, I did vascular, did other things, derm, uh, infectious disease where, you know, you're on a service with right. any other resident. So it wasn't completely streamlined, but for the most part, it, it taught me how to relate to other specialists and right. how what I do is pertinent to what they do. Right. And I mean, a lot of those sound really relevant to they podiatry are. as well. And you might even say, oh, okay, this is, now I know who to refer to. Yes. This is not something I necessarily deal with, but I've seen enough to say, okay, this is Derm or ID or whatever. Absolutely. Let's go back to like when you first decided, okay, I want to have my own practice. I came out of residency thinking I, I, I had to work for somebody, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. We, uh, My wife and I are both from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, again, went to school in California and Texas and residency in Kentucky. and uh, We decided we didn't want to go back to Wisconsin because it was so cold. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, we continued having children. We had five children when I finished residency, mm-hmm. and I felt the crunch to go have an income that was guaranteed and, you know, just start working and earning some money finally instead of living off of loans. Yeah. So we drove around the Southeast, went to all the big cities everywhere that we thought we might want to live that we'd heard about and uh, drove through Nashville. Mm-hmm. And Nashville is a beautiful place. Uh, from all the research I did, it was really growing. It was a, people compared it to a, a young Atlanta mm-hmm. at that time. It was, I finished my residency in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started looking for jobs, and we kind of narrowed down to the Raleigh-Durham area and the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. Got nothing out of North Carolina and found a guy in Nashville that looked like it was a good opportunity. So we went with it, and I worked for him for two years. Mm-hmm. At the end of the two years, um, we had a kind of an ugly parting. He let me go, and it was kind of a surprise. I had just had my sixth child, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, I'm without a job and without a plan. Mm-hmm. Kind of blindsided me. The hospital that I'm at now, Stonecrest, was brand new at the time. The CEO was very 
very helpful mm-hmm. to encourage me to start my own practice and to stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, the medical staff was young. Most of the, the primary care had started at the same time as me, and I knew everybody. I spent a lot of time in the doctor's lounge kind of networking and mm-hmm. getting to know everybody. So when this all happened, uh, the other doctor that I worked for didn't spend as much time here, and people didn't really know him. Mm. So the CEO really encouraged me to to start my own practice, and I was terrified to do that. That was not something I'd ever planned on doing. Mm. I had a couple of friends, um, one who was an attorney and one who uh, owned a a chain of Sonic restaurants, Mm. and they were very encouraging as well. Kind of a crazy story, the way I ended up losing my job. It's probably worth hearing about. Yeah. Um, I was on vacation uh, with my family, visiting my, my wife's parents. And I was at the airport actually in Las Vegas, uh, ready to fly home. Mm-hmm. The phone rang. I've got this new baby in my arms. She was literally like two weeks old, three weeks old. Yeah. And this doctor that I worked for said, Hey, how are you? I said, good. Got a pen. I said, no, I'm at the airport in line, ready to board. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, why don't you grab a pen? So I'm scrambling for a pen. He says, write down this phone number. And he says, that's my attorney's number. If you need anything, call him, but don't bother coming to work tomorrow. And just like that, I was out of a job, completely blindsided. When I left, we were talking about me potentially buying in and being partners. And I mean, I had no idea that this was coming at all. You know, my whole world got turned upside down. In hindsight, it was the best thing that has ever happened to me because it really forced me to grow up Mm -hmm. and it forced me to look for other options and with the encouragement of these other friends and, and, and colleagues, um, I was able to start my own practice. My friend, who is an attorney, um, was very—it was very interesting. Um, he informed me that literally the day before I got the phone call, yeah, the or the Friday before, the Tennessee State Le- um, Supreme Court had mm-hmm. gotten rid of the non-competes. That there was some ruling where non-competes were no longer enforceable. Therefore, my non-compete was gone, mm. which I would have been forced to, to leave based on, on the non-compete or fight it. And I didn't have enough money to, to try to fight it and yeah. do that. So the timing of it was, was just, it was a blessing. It was really, really amazing how that worked out. Yeah. And the support I got from the hospital and the encouragement. So I spent about two months really researching and trying to figure out where I wanted to set up my practice and, mm-hmm. and how to do it. And, I started reading books and talking to other people that did it. And then I just jumped in. I mortgaged my house, got the loan for Mm -hmm. my practice and said, I really hope this works. And had one patient my first day that was a friend from church and kind of (laughs) took off went running from there. At the time, did the hospital give you any income guarantee or they were just generally encouraging? No, they said, hey, we have a timeshare available and you can rent it out for two treatment rooms for five days a week and Mm -hmm. we'll encourage our our doctors to support you and and help you out. Was there a a moment or specific thing that made you decide, okay, rather than give in to the urge probably to go get employed somewhere else, I'm going to go on my own, kind of take this risk with mortgaging the house and you know, you have a lot of ongoing expenses with the family. Like what, what was it that made you think, you know what, let's just try it. Uh, again, it was, it was the encouragement of the hospital that they told me, Hey, you can do this. It's about volume and we will send you patients. We'll help you. Um, you know, they were very, very encouraging. Um, at the end of two years, I was very confident in my abilities at that point. I mm-hmm. knew that I, I could do the stuff that I was trained to do. I mean, I was very comfortable mm-hmm. with a clinical setting and 
surgical setting at that point. I'd kind of gotten all that fear out of the way. Mm-hmm. And again, my friend who was an entrepreneur that, you know, started multiple businesses said, Hey, you don't want to work for anybody. This is your opportunity. Uh, don't pass it up. And he really, you know, really mentored me through that. And that was not something that I ever grew up thinking. My dad worked for the state of Wisconsin. He wanted mm-hmm. a, um, you know, a stable job. He's not a big risk taker. It wasn't something I'd really ever planned on doing or thought about. I was really forced into it. And I'm so glad that I was. Yeah. Yeah. The, the freedom that it gave me was, was exactly what I've always wanted. Right. Now you have seven providers. How many locations do you have? Seven. Seven locations now. Oh, what's that? And we're about to open another one. About so. to open an eight. So really you're kind of building an empire out here now. Um, not in the negative sense, but yeah. Well, I see that there's a big need for what we do and now I understand how to do it. And I think many people are fearful like I was coming out of school, especially in this environment today, that they don't want to go start their own practice, nor can they, um, you know, they, or they don't know how to do it. Right. They probably could, but they just don't know how to do it. And I think I was that same of that same mentality when I came out of residency. Right. And I wanted to ask you, like, at what point, maybe the first year or the second year, when did you think, okay, I kind of got this, just like you felt comfortable clinically, when did you feel comfortable from the practice management business standpoint? I don't know if I'm still comfortable. uh, (laughs) We're going, let's see, 2005, so we're going on 12 years now, and Mm -hmm. uh, there's still things I learn every day, and things I say, oh, that was an expensive mistake. Um, but I've learned that that's how you get through it is you make those mistakes and, and they never, move on. they never really kill you. No, you it's not going to kill you. It just, you know, maybe you take a little less money home you know, right. that year or whatever, but it was probably a, a year into it when I felt like, Hey, this is going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a year and a half. Cause I remember I finally got to the point where we were, paying the loan back on a consistent basis. And I wasn't worried about my expenses. And all of a sudden I had a big chunk of money in the bank mm-hmm. and I said, Hey, this is working. Yeah. And, uh, I remember calling my, I called my wife's parents and asked them to come and stay with the kids and take my wife on a trip to Florida. And we went to the Florida Keys for three days to mm-hmm. kind of celebrate the fact that we'd made it in a sense that, that we survived right everything up to that point and I knew that it was going to work going forward and that was probably two years into it I guess that was 2007 when we did that so about two years I mean I think that's a super inspiring story to hear for people who think exactly that that they can't do it or they don't know how to do it I guess what I'm trying to express to the listeners is like if you think about it and plan it you can definitely do it well yeah I'm very much a planner I like to have things laid out I want to know what's coming and that was part of the reason that something like this was so difficult for me, but it was so good that, yeah, if I'd had more time to plan out and say, Hey, this is where I want to be. This is, you know, how I'm going to do it, who the vendors are that I'm going to use. Um, you know, yeah, maybe it would have been a little smoother, but sometimes you just got to jump in with both feet and do it. And uh, it's sink or swim. And that motivates you. you yeah. Know, I was up late at night and still am frequently 
planning things out and thinking about this or that and, you know, evaluating numbers and figuring out what numbers are important, what you need to evaluate. Mm -hmm. I was a zoology pre-med major in college. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any business background. It's all new to me. I didn't know what a balance sheet was or income statement. You know, I, I had no idea how business worked. Right. And I just found good people to help me. Um, found a good banker found a good accountant, found uh, found a, a consultant, someone that I could bounce ideas off of that would mm-hmm. evaluate things, and it's, it's worked out great. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your operations and your workflow, both, both kind of the front end and back end. Obviously, having eight practices brings challenges from the workflow standpoint. Thinking back to the days of when you had one location, what are three things that you wish you had known before that you know now about your front end or back end workflow? Well, number one, I wish I'd had a better understanding of the insurance world. Mm-hmm. And that's ever changing, as you know. Um, but back when I started, people had a five or ten dollar copay and everything was covered. So I didn't worry about collecting balances from the patients or like, for example, you go to the dentist, the dentists have it figured out. They're really good at telling you, you're going to owe $79 for today's visit. How Mm -hmm. do you want to, how do you want to make that payment today? Um, the healthcare world, we didn't ever have to do that because insurance covered everything. And that's changed dramatically over the last 10 years where now, Frequently, I'll have people with a $40 copay or a $50 copay, and then everything else goes to their deductible. And trying to figure out that that cash flow has become a bigger issue. I wish I'd seen that coming earlier on to prepare for that better um, and set some some things in place to to figure that out and talk to some dentists and figure out how they're doing that early on. But I honestly, I didn't worry about it. I just figured insurance is going to pay and I'll get their copay up front and uh, we'll go from there. Um, that's probably the biggest mm-hmm. um, issue. Um, and, and I'd just like to point out, you know, that's not necessarily something you think of when you think workflow, you think of, Oh, you know, your patient checks in and then you take them back, but you realize that it, it has an impact. It changes the check-in process. Um, I know in our practice, we implemented, okay, we really need to get that uh, co-payment up front, but that means we need to know what the co-payment is ahead of mm-hmm. times, which means we need to figure out how we find the co-payment. So all of a sudden you have this process now that's, okay, the day before you check online or maybe through your EMR what the co-payment is so you have it ready to ask for it up front. So even though like thinking about insurance may not necessarily translate to workflow, you probably realized quickly that, okay, these types of ancillary things actually impact the way you train your staff and how they actually operate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And staff training would be another, uh, another thing that took me a while to figure out is the importance of that and teaching them how to do the same thing every time. Mm-hmm. It's really important, especially with a large practice that everybody knows their jobs and they know how to do it. So, um, over time I implemented uh, a how to book mm-hmm. called Newhouse Foot Nickel How To, where I had the staff write down absolutely everything they did from the verbiage and answering the phone to how they talk to a patient um, when they're taking a copay, 
um, to you know how you take x-rays, what the views are, to if I have a, a procedure, what the tray should look like, what instruments I want, what dressings I want, what the drawers should look like, what the cabinet should look like. This how-to book covers everything. And I had the staff set that up, and I wish I had done that from the get-go. Um, it took me a while to fumble through some things and have people doing different things and saying, well, how come you didn't do that? Well, I didn't know that was my job. And what I used was kind of the McDonald's fast food idea. I started thinking about how these businesses do it. Well, you know what you're going to get if you walk into a Walmart or a um, a Target or a, a Wendy's, no matter where you are in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, people have the same uniforms. They have a name tag on. The restaurants are set up the same way. The menu looks the same. You know where to look for pricing. It's, it's the whole franchise model. They've got right. that figured out. And that was where I eventually moved to is trying to standardize everything which is a lot harder in a medical world because doctors are free thinkers and, you know, every patient's a little bit different with, you know, what's going on. But the the standard check-in procedure, what the medical assistants do, how you get from point A to point B should be the same everywhere to be truly efficient. And I didn't understand that when I started. And I imagine that the staff actually like this as well because it's easier for them to predict how the day will go and if say they need a cover in a different office they kind of know what to expect i think that's exactly right it is very helpful for them because i'll have feedback where somebody goes to another office and then they come back to me and they say hey uh, uh they're not doing that out there and then that's the red flag for us now to say all right we need to go train them again and see what's going on and then they come and spend some time here with me and i tell them hey this is how we want it done. And I've got a great practice administrator and uh, office office manager now that, that are very good at training. We do regular training, weekly training with mm. the staff to uh, uh, make sure we, we fill in those gaps and figure out what it is that they're missing and what they need to, to work on to make it more efficient. What systems do you have in place to kind of tell if operations or, or workflow is breaking down somewhere, whether that's front end or back end? Well, I think now it's it's very apparent very quickly if things are not being done just because it, it it's not streamlined if they're not doing it. We know how it should go, how long it should take for patients um, to do what they're doing. When we get a phone call from a patient that's angry about their bill and it wasn't explained to them on the front end, we know the staff isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing to talk about the financial piece on the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we kind of fight it that way now, knowing that it's just a training issue. And that's really how we approach it is, yeah, if there's something that doesn't go right, it's usually because we just haven't trained them adequately mm-hmm. and taught them how to handle that situation. And, and questions come up and we address them as they come. We also do quarterly training where we get everybody together, mm-hmm. uh, all the staff together for an afternoon and do question and answer and kind of go over, you know, a high level of this is how it should be done. And, and things are brought to our attention at that point when there's some confusion on um, this, that, or the other. On the training piece, how uh, how do you approach the training for new folks? We have a training checklist. Mm-hmm. So we know what skills that person needs, whether it be front office or back office, and we go through that checklist. And we have a designated trainer, somebody that's supposed to be with them, watching over them, and they're supposed to initial or check off each item on the list to make sure that they've been taught how to do it. And then they can go ahead and 
show them that, Hey, I do know how to do this. Mm -hmm. So I'll teach you how to take an x-ray for example. And then, you know, we'll, you'll show me that you can do it or that you can set up this tray for this procedure or that you can check somebody in it. You can take a copay or you know how to answer the phone. We'll teach you how, then we'll listen to you do it and we'll sign it off and we'll go through that. So you can't ever come back to us and say, Oh, well, you didn't teach me how to do that because we've got the checklist that says, yes, we did. And you know, mm-hmm. here's who did it with you. So we know that, that things are getting done. And again, that took us a while to figure out that that's what we needed to do. And once you figured these things out, was it challenging to actually implement them or was the hard part saying, okay, here's a system we need executing on it. Wasn't as well. Much. Absolutely. It's difficult to, to execute it, to get people to do, you know, things on a regular basis and routinely is it's always a challenge. Uh, you know, and things change. We'll have different issues come up that didn't ever come up before. And we realize, right. hey, we need to implement this. And, uh, you know, the most recent one over the past few years has been the, the change with Obamacare and the high deductible policies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've really had to hone in on our financial policies. Mm-hmm. And we've been tweaking that and working towards how do we notify patients what their expected bill is and how do we make it comfortable and private to talk to them about money and who should talk to them about money? I'm, I'm a firm believer it should not be the physician. Mm-hmm. It should not be the provider speaking to the patients about money. They should say, hey, this is what you need. The insurance is, it's, I always tell people it's an agreement between the patient and the insurance company. And I'm kind of the middle guy mm-hmm. stuck in between. Um, so we, when we explain it to patients that way, I think that helps them to understand that we're just trying to help them know what their benefits are. So in that case, did you train your staff on, all right, here are the changes that are coming with these insurance plans. Here's how we're seeing this manifest with the patients asking us questions, asking you questions, and here's how you should respond to it yes. because this is the new policy. That's exactly what we do. And we have a list. We'll write down questions that we get and say, here's the appropriate answer. Here's how you answer this question. We train the staff on that. So if this comes up, this is what you say to to answer that question. So hopefully they're not getting different answers when they talk to different people in the different offices. Right. Well, the billing lady said this and the front desk lady said that, and we can't have that. You know, Mm -hmm. we all have to be on the same page and there should be one answer. Sometimes there's a gray area, but there should be one answer. Right. So we need to figure out what that is and then train everybody on how to answer those questions. That makes perfect sense. And I can tell you really thought this out. I'm kind of geeky and that I like operation. How important do you think it is that the leader of the practice, in this case, you really make sure that the operations are set up and then really followed and executed in order to keep that discipline and making things standardized? I think there's absolutely no way I would be in the situation I am today if I didn't have these operations and didn't have the standardization. Um, It would be just chaos if everyone's doing their own thing and I didn't have it laid out with the specifics. And I think that's something that we can continually improve upon and work with the staff on and help them understand that this, there needs to be order. Okay. We have to be a business that has order and has structure. And in order for patients to get the care that they need, we have to have a framework that we follow and it would be, it would be impossible if we didn't have that. How did you feel about operations and workflow stuff at first? And has that changed as time's gone on? As physicians, we're trained to treat the patient and the rest of it just kind of happens. Right. And, you know, oftentimes that's the way we look at it is I'm here to solve a problem, fix it. And the other stuff just takes care of itself, but it really doesn't take care of itself. There's so much that goes on in a medical practice to make it all work that our, 
uh, our treating the patient and deciding what medication we need to prescribe them is such a small piece of that patient's visit. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand where doctors come from that they, they just want to treat patients. You know, that's what we're trained to do. That's how I make money. Let me just see the patient and be done with it and go home. Um, but it's, it's not that way if you're going to have your own practice. If you want to practice that way, then you need to work for a multi-specialty group or a, a large group that has all these systems already in place where that's really all you have to do is just show up and collect your paycheck. Right. And I think that obviously there are trade-offs for working in one of those situations. But I think even then, it might behoove you to understand how the operations work because then you can... It affects the physician, whether or not they want to think about it. So I think understanding how it works and being able to craft it to however it makes sense to you is in your benefit, even if you don't really want to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. It does affect each of us. And oftentimes the patient will come to the doctor and say, hey, Susie Q said this at the front desk or did this or, you know, they want to drag you into the middle of it. And you have to be able to step back and say, hey, you know what, we've got a system in place for this. You need our office manager deals with this kind of stuff and our staff is very well trained and they know how to deal with this problem. So we'll let them handle it, but you need to know where you stand. Cause I've seen the doctors get in the middle of it mm-hmm. and totally muck it up because they're trying to be nice to the patient. In terms of the, the workflow, what tools and technology have you found to be helpful in managing all of it? I'll tell you the electronic health record is supposed to be helpful in that sense Mm -hmm. and it's exactly the opposite that's what slows us down is the time that we take to input data and information into the computer to uh to fill up our electronic medical record um what we're implementing now as i say we're constantly changing and trying to find new things so um Next week, we're actually going to implement uh, iPads in the office where the patient can fill out all their new patient paperwork Mm -hmm. digitally, and that'll be imported into the system. So they can put their insurance information and they can put everything in. Um, Currently, the company we're working with doesn't have the ability to to take payments, Mm -hmm. um, which is what I'm I'm, I'm very disappointed that they're not able to do that because some practices can do that. And I think that's the key to get payment at the the point of service. but we're at least going to get all the data put in there and allowing that'll free up our staff to answer the phone, to actually take care of the patients and not be sitting in front of the computer typing things in. Because we can have a new patient that'll come, they spend 10 minutes filling out their new patient paperwork or more, and then they give that to our front desk and then they have to enter in all their demographics, address, double check everything, insurance information if it hasn't been taken when they scheduled the appointment, double checking it at least. And then the medical assistant has to get it and in all the past medical history and the medications and you know, mm-hmm. surgeries and why are you here and all that stuff. And that just takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what slows us down in the office more than anything else. So I'm excited to implement that piece of it. And I'm really hoping that frees up a lot of time for us. And when you think about these new implementations, just like how you mentioned, you wish that this new system would allow you to take payment up front. Do you sort of imagine, okay, what could make this faster and then go and try to find the tools and technologies that would fit in with your vision of, okay, this would help the yes, operations be more that's smooth? That's exactly the way I look at it is I can see where, I can see where the breakdown is mm-hmm. in things now. And I've known for years that that was the issue. And just the systems that I've had, there are certainly 
um, EHR providers out there that are ahead of where, where mine have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I can see where the, where the breakdown is. And for us right now, that's the, that's the sticking point is the front end patient information going in, letting them know what their outstanding balance is mm-hmm. and collecting money from them. Those are the things right now that we're trying to, to deal with. And, um, I think we've found a solution. We just have to implement it. And, and I want to just actually dig into a little part of what you just said in terms of you knowing that this, these have been issues for years. For those aspiring physician entrepreneurs, podiatry entrepreneurs, and dental, whatever, healthcare provider entrepreneurs, do you think that it becomes pretty apparent once you start running an office where the breakdowns are? It's not, it's not really rocket science. You'll just kind of notice it. Yes. I think anybody can do it. I think it just takes you, takes a person who's willing to take the time to, to sort through it and figure it out. And you do that when you're not seeing patients. So you, you got to put the time in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, but yeah, it's very apparent when, when you sit down and look at the numbers and see where the flow is and look at the time that patients spend in different portions of your practice. How long do they spend in the treatment room? Why is that? What's the medical assistant doing? Mm-hmm. How come they spend this much time, you know, between check-in and check-out? What, what's that slowdown? And mm-hmm. yeah, you just have to sit down and look at it. And I, like I say, I don't have a business background. I don't have that training. I've just figured all this out. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. Just really paying attention. And you don't need any fancy tools to say, oh, it's really this breakdown. And you can just kind of tell. Correct. I mean, I I bet I would imagine if I had an MBA or had some, you know, sort of education along those lines in the business world that I could have saved myself some some heartache and probably some money over time. But um, you can figure it out. Yeah. Well, no offense to the MBAs, but I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, I hear about a lot and tell me if I'm wrong, is scheduling and how setting up your schedule can impact your workflow especially with you going and doing surgeries from time to time. Just wondering if you have any advice for people to consider in terms of scheduling. Yeah, it's probably the same thing everybody does. You know, we try to use a template system where we say we need a new patient every half hour, uh, follow-up patients um, in this time slot, an established patient with a new problem in this time slot. So we've got templates that we encourage the staff to follow. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly things that come up where, you know, you have – five new patients or a doctor calls and wants to get this person in and it, it bogs things down. But the more you, we can stick to a template and, um, and, and we've kind of figured out where those time slots are, you know, we don't want four post-op patients in a row, but mm-hmm. I don't want four new patient slots in a row either. We got to space out the type of patient that you see to keep the flow going. And how do you figure out what that optimal flow is? Just kind of trial and error. I don't think there is an optimal flow mm-hmm. because, uh, I will frequently run behind because you can't predict how serious a problem is going to be. Your normal post-op patient may be doing great and you take their sutures out and they're gone. Or they come in and all of a sudden they've got an infected wound and you need to take them back to surgery and do an IND. Mm-hmm. Um, a new patient, you know, may be something straightforward and simple, or it could be someone that stepped on a nail that's got this pussy infected foot with an osteomyelitis. Um, so I don't think you can ever be on schedule, mm-hmm. but you have to be adaptable and be willing to willing to run behind or pick up the pace a little bit. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the art of medicine is trying to figure that out. But the template in the scheduling mm-hmm. is the basics of 
getting you there. Um, if you don't have a template and just take people as they call, it's you're setting yourself up for disaster. And are there any other, other than like trying to follow the template as much as you can, any big like definitely do's or don't do's in scheduling, like don't ever triple book or, or things like that, that you've realized, okay, just need to not do that. Yeah, there's... <sighs> I think every physician figures out how quickly they can work through patients. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people want to sit and do their entire note after each visit. That slows you down. Uh, I personally like to do uh, write notes on a piece of paper. If I have time, I'll get into the EMR and I'll type in the exam and the plan or or one or the other to to get the note going. And then I do it after hours to get caught up. Um, But you have to figure out what your, what your, typical day, your perfect schedule, how many patients could you see in an hour? Mm-hmm. I have doctors in my practice that want to see three or four. You know, I prefer to see six or seven because um, I, I think I can work a little bit quicker and you know I have a lot more follow-ups or, or quicker established patients. and uh, you know It's just something I've figured out over time, but I think you have to learn what you're comfortable with, what your speed is, uh, how much time you want to spend with the patients, how complicated are, are your patients typically. Um, to decide, you know, what you set your template up as. I want to shift to just one question for the folks who are going to be in podiatry or other fields where you need a lot of things, a lot of supplies. How do you manage your supplies and make sure you have what you need to get procedures done, um, gauze, whatever else you end up using in the office? Yeah, that's a good question. So, again, we have... We have a a checklist. We have our inventory checklist where we list everything that we order and every office has the exact same list. These are the things you can order. And Mm -hmm. if one of the doctors says, hey, I really want this, then we meet and we talk about it. We say, well, why do you want that instead of this other thing? We're open to changes, Mm -hmm. but there has to be a good reason. It has to be something that isn't an exception for, for you because, you know, there's a lot of ways to do things. There's not necessarily one right way to do it Mm -hmm. Um, but there's multiple different types of suture well we don't need to have 12 different types of suture in every office that's very expensive to do that so we had to get the doctors together and say all right we're going to use a 4-0 nylon to sew up a laceration Mm -hmm. Um, some people want proline some people want a monocryl some people want well you can't have it we can't have it all Um, it's not a buffet so when it comes to that kind of thing ordering supplies it's very important that we decide what we want and we work within that that list that we have. And then our staff knows once a week you go through, here's the number of items that you should have on the shelf at a minimum. If you don't, then you're going to order this many. And if we run out during the week, then we say, hey, we need to bump that up because we're using more of this product. And we bump that up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we at least have that, that list to go down, and that helps control where we're at. It sounds like you have some daily checklists and some weekly checklists, perhaps even some monthly checklists as well to make sure everything runs smoothly. Yes, that's exactly right. We have at the end of the day, the staff are supposed to go check the rooms and restock the rooms. And, you know, if we're constantly restocking and we have, we know how many things are on the shelf and how many things are in the room, then we know if our, our checklist, you know, if we're ordering the right amount, but Mm -hmm. we don't want to have 50 bottles of lidocaine on the shelf. Right. Um, if we're going to use two bottles a week, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it took a while to figure that out. But I think we're finally at a point where we know those about, ratios. Yeah. We know yeah. about how many we're going to use based on the type of practice that we have. So just kind of wrapping up this uh, workflow operations piece, 
do you have any stories or anything you can think of where something you changed actually made a, a huge difference that was just like really unexpected from a workflow standpoint? You know, one of the things that, and I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but we use a lot of what we call cam walkers, the walking boots, with Velcro straps. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, they're very expensive um, to the patient, less so to us. Um, there's, there's a pretty good profit margin on those products. Um, but what I realized is if you don't have those products in stock, uh, those are things that patients need. Uh, and they're going to wear it and they're going to advertise for you. So kind of combining everything, um, we figured out real quick that that's something you don't want to run out of. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen where I had a whole closet full of these expensive boots, thousands of dollars in boots that are just sitting there because... You know, somebody ordered 10 of every size every time they needed one just because that's what they were doing. That's what they thought we needed to do. Um, But uh, several years ago, we put logos. We got our logo put on the straps. Mm -hmm. And that little thing was like the best thing in the world for us from an advertising standpoint. Everybody sees our boots. I have patients come in and say, oh, hey, I saw my cousin Joe had foot surgery. And how would you know that? Well, your name is on his boot. People don't know who they go see. It's the craziest thing. You can ask, who took your appendix out? I have no idea. It was this doctor at this hospital three years ago. Shouldn't you know that? (laughs) But when you put your logo on something, uh, it's there, and then they remember you, and other people see it. So from a workflow standpoint, trying to figure out, and I I came across this because I had to go talk to the rep to figure out what my flow really was. How many am I really Mm -hmm. using? How many are we really ordering? Am I getting paid for them? You know, I was really digging in hard to that piece of it. And then they said, hey, you can throw a logo on here. It'll cost you like a dollar boot. And I think we ended up getting it down for even less than that. Yeah. Um, but but that little kind of mishap helped us out a lot to figure out, you know, the need to talk to the rep and sort through how many we were ordering and yeah. making sure we're getting paid for them. Yeah. So, so number one, have a logo. Number two, get it out there. And I guess number three, you never know what you'll find when you dig into operations and try to make them better. Yeah, yeah. Because we had to come up, we had to change our paperwork with that mm-hmm. for our, our checklist. So we have a receipt for the patients to sign that they get it. We had to pull the sticker off the packaging to put on there to prove that we gave it to them to keep track of it. Then we talked to our billing lady and make sure that she's getting the paperwork and that it's getting billed out. Mm-hmm. And then how many are we really buying and how many are sitting on the shelf that are just dead space um there's a lot that goes into that one product Mm -hmm. um that it took me uh, i'm afraid to admit it but it took me too many years to figure that figure out there's a lot of money tied up in boots in my in my practice at the end of it i just like to ask our guests a few general questions um, for the listeners and the first one is what was the most important thing that you feel helped you get to this point, whether it was skills or knowledge or some personal characteristic? Um, Finding people that were doing it and modeling what they were doing. For example, when I started my practice, I got online and found people that had their online, had their new patient paperwork online. Mm -hmm. And I printed it off and looked through and said, Hey, what's important on here? Cause I never paid attention to it. So I said, what kind of stuff do I need to ask? 
um, what goes on my review of systems? What's really, what needs to be there? Mm-hmm. And then I found a good organization for podiatrists called the uh, American Academy of Podiatric Practice Management. Mm-hmm. It's a practice management organization. And I went to those lectures. I went to those meetings two or three times a year for the first few years mm-hmm. and figured out how successful people were doing it and learned some of the, the tricks that they had that they were willing to share at how they it was, it's a group of successful podiatrists and how they run their practice. And, and that was very helpful for me as well. Probably the last thing, I read a lot of books. Mm. I read a lot of books for other businesses, a lot of biographies of successful business leaders that you know, have started. I love the startup story. Um, you know, Tony Sai with, uh, with Zappos. Those are very instrumental for me, very helpful for me to say, okay, this guy took this company and started it here and this is how they did it. I love reading those stories and seeing how successful people got to be successful. And it's, there's no trick to it. It's hard work. It's seeing an opportunity and running with it and really digging in. And healthcare is one of those things that if you can provide a really good service and take care of your patients, they, I've learned they don't care what your class rank was. They don't care what your GPA was. Mm-hmm. They don't care where you went to school. They don't care where you did your residency or your fellowship. Those are all things that matter to us. But the patients at the end of the day, they want to get better and they want you to be a nice guy. They want you to, to care about them. And if yeah. you show people that you care, um, you're going to be successful. Great. The second question, what, what did you really end up enjoying most through this process that you didn't expect to enjoy? growing the business has been when I when I first started my practice I named it Newhouse Foot and Ankle because I swore I would never have anybody else as a partner I didn't want to work with anybody I had such a bad experience with this guy that I worked with Mm -hmm. that I decided to name the practice after myself so it would force me to be on my own forever and what I've really enjoyed is growing it and seeing these other doctors be successful to to encourage them and say hey look this is where I started I can help you develop a busy, successful practice. I know how to do it now. And it's been very enjoyable for me to see them succeed, to see them get busy. And I've started several new practices where these guys have come in and worked for me and they're not that busy. And then we grow it over a period of a year or two. And I can see every time it gets a little bit better. And I can see the opportunities and where they are in, in the in the market now. And, and I really do enjoy that piece of it. Kind of sounding like a, an MBA now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> and then the last thing, what, what advice do you have for medical students, residents, uh, physicians out there who are thinking about starting their practice right now? First of all, figure out where you want to live. And don't worry about the number of specialists that do what you do. Um, that's one of the things that I was concerned about early on is, well, there's three guys that do the same thing I do in the community. There's plenty of work to go around, no matter what your specialty is. If you're good, people are going to find you. It's going to take time, but if you take care of people, they're going to find you. First of all, figure out where you want to be and then go there and make it happen. Don't go somewhere because you think the opportunity is going to be good. And you're going to be busy. And you're going to make a lot of money. If you're chasing the dollars, you're not going to be happy. you got to go where you're going to have a place that you want to live long term. Mm-hmm. And really with the medical practice, it's long term. Um, you're not going to be successful if you move around every three to five years mm-hmm. and keep saying, oh, it's going to be better, busier over there or better with this group or that group. You really got to sink your feet in and build a, build a reputation in the community. Um, that's what long term will, will make you successful. 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nielsen. This has been amazing. Really appreciate the time and the help. Thankful to have you on here with your wisdom. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me.